Hi there, welcome to the Freudcast. I'm Matt Barbet. Soft power is defined as the ability to shape preferences of others through appeal and attraction. A former UK Prime Minister once described Britain as a soft power superpower, and it's really hard to disagree. British cultural exports have long been some of the country's most useful ambassadors. From Shakespeare to Tolkien, from Adele to Harry Potter, many artistic creations have enjoyed phenomenal global success. Despite this, though, many arts organisations and creatives are in a bit of a tight spot with budgets in sharp decline over the last decade. To discuss all this, Freud's Zulam Elamogo sat down with former BBC arts editor and now the artistic director for Europe's largest multi-arts venue, the Barbican Centre, Will Gompertz. NFTs, yes or no? I, I, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> How do you feel about the digital revolution and its place in it? Briefly. Well, it's obviously, over, like, over, over COVID, it was amazing. You could see what it could do. It could deliver fantastic content and fantastic connections for people. It's literally a lifesaver for some people, I think. Yeah. So Streaming, TikTok. That's great. That, Twitch. Yeah, and, and all that's fantastic. How much really great work is created digitally and delivered digitally? Mm. I, I, uh, you know, I'm not so sure, but things like VR are really moving on quickly and... You know, if you just look at that Abba experience, what's it called, Abba Voyage? People are kind of loving that. And so there is definitely something happening. So the, the digital revolution is beginning to, I think, have a meaningful impact on, on, on makers producing work that touches large audiences. Yeah. For me, there's something amazing about art. Of, over all the other art forms, so obviously there's, there's literature and there's music and there's theatre uh, and there's dance. And, and, but, but every other art form like has... They have time to tease out what you want to say. So the artist can, you could tease out what you want to say over 250 pages or two hours on a stage or even like three minutes in a song. Mm. But as an artist, I mean, we've got this Grayson Perry tapestry up there. Uh, as an artist, you, you have one image. You could convey everything. You could convey a movie, a novel, a song, whatever it is, you've got one image to do it. And, and most people spend like about three or four seconds looking at that image. So you've got no time. So suddenly something about the image has to be so true to what you want to say. So so inside you, you've got it out. It's, and um, so I think art is really special. And great art is the greatest of all the arts because it's such a difficult thing to do. So if you think of those, you know, some of those historically amazing images, they are, you know, they, everybody knows them. You can, you can see them from a... You know, do you know people, when, when the Mona Lisa was stolen, people went to queue to look at the blank wall. You know, wow. can you, you know, can you, I mean, it's just amazing. I mean, that's the sort of effect art can have on people, just a single image that it sort of describes our humanity in a way that, that, that is so powerful. People will queue to see, you know, people almost have, I suppose what I'm saying is a religious relationship with it. Wow. Of course, you are the artistic director of the Barbican Centre, what is the Barbican Centre? So the Barbican Centre, the Barbican Centre is um, it's an arts centre, but it's uh, it's quite interesting because it sort of sits in um, it's in the city of London, and it was it's, it's built on a place where when the Romans first settled the city of London in AD forty three, they built a fort in the northwest corner of the city, um, where which would be like a sanctuary for people, mm. and Barbican just means fort. So here we are, nearly two thousand years later, and there's still a fort. And there was always art connected with that space. So there's like an amphitheater just a few hundred meters away from the Barbican. So there's always been this notion, really ancient notion, 
of um, of art and, and and sanctuary in that space, uh, and then during the Second World War it got completely flattened by bombs, so it is completely derelict. Except weirdly, one Norman church survived. So there's just completely flat in this one Norman church. I don't know what that says about anything, but it survived. And underneath that church is John Milton, the poet. He's buried there. And then and then the city of London after the war wanted to sort of um, recreate what London was, get people back there, make it less derelict. And they had this idea of creating some sort of utopia, um, which was at sort of how nice flats, apartments for people, mm. and then this like art centre to enjoy, which is kind of hidden inside like a wonderland. And, um, and I can't imagine it being done today because it would cost billions and it's, it's you know, and, and they, everything was raised above the street level so all the walking areas were struck, and, and so so the cars would all people were driving by cars, but you'd never see them, you wouldn't hear them, and they'd park up, and then everything else happens in a pedestrian way, and there's a fake lake, and it's um, is it fake? It's totally fake. Yeah, uh, it's only like it's only about a foot deep, and it looks really deeper because it's dyed it's dyed dark green. Looks great though. It looks great. Yeah, yeah. yeah. everything about them. So they, these were just Gotta young. See it if you have These were young architects called Chamberlain, Powell, and Bond, and they just had this extraordinary vision. Mm. And uh, and they uh, and they the whole thing is like it's got it's concrete. It's made up from concrete, and they decided that the smooth concrete was a bit boring. So they got six guys w- with bush hammers to go around the whole forty-acre estate. Crazy. And and chisel into the concrete. Artistic director, what's yeah. your role about? What does it entail? Uh, yeah, do you know what it's like? You're the conductor of the orchestra, and so you've got all these amazing people. Um, you know, working with artists, booking artists, putting on shows, and my job's to kind of make a tune out of it. So you know, so it's not dissonant, but it's harmonious, and and it's different enough to attract lots of different people. But there's something in it that makes it feel like it's a Barbican show. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and of course, the Barbican turned forty this year, right? And I think you've timed your entry quite well. Yeah, time for a new vision. Exactly. Well, I just think art's got a bigger role to play in society than it does. Or the arts, at least. And so it's been sort of like marginalised in, in education, and um, but I think that, that the you know the artists and people working in the arts and people working in in, in a company like this one, Freud's, which is about uh, generating ideas that matter, ideas that can change people's way of thinking. Mm. That for me is like that's how artists think, and uh, you know there's a there's um, there's a, an artist called Siesta Gates. Does anybody know Theasta Gates? So he's an African American artist. He's actually he's got. If you go to the Serpentine now, he's the, the, the summer pavilion they put up every year. He's he's designed that pavilion outside the Serpentine with uh, the architect David Ajay. And uh, so Theasta Gates is a, t- a typical example of what what you can do with um, with art. So so he was so Theasta was I think he was like the ninth child. So he's got eight elder sisters. And he was born in a poor area of Chicago, and his mum was a primary school teacher, and his dad liked tiled roofs, and and Fiesta was quite bright, and he did well at school, and did well at uni, and then he got a job at university, teaching town planning. And so this is at Chicago University, and he quite liked doing pottery at the weekends. So he's a it's like he's a town planning lecturer, right? And he likes doing pottery at the weekends, and. Um, He'd go and sell those pots at the county fair every month, and like the, you know, it'd be five pounds for a pot and three, 
or five five dollars for a pot, four dollars for a plate, six dollars for a cup, or whatever it might be. And people would come up and say, "Thiesta, I I really like that cup. I you know can I buy it off you for three dollars?" And he wasn't interested in haggling at all because he said, "I've made it in my hand, in my heart, in my head. You know, mm. that's what it costs." So he got really fed up with it. So he decided, he's completely true. He decided to um, to do something different. He so he. He, he rented a space in Chicago, which isn't like massively different than the space we're in now. This, so I don't know, 10 meters by 10 meters, not, not a big space. And, and he decided to have an exhibition of his pots and his plates and his mugs, um, uh, except uh, he, he didn't say they were by Fiesta Gates. He said they were by this Japanese master called Soji Yamaguchi, completely fabricated name. And he made the name by conflating two different names, which was Soji Hamada, who was a great Japanese master, and Yamaguchi, which is an area in Japan where ceramics are taught. He put them together and he just figured the Americans would never work it out. <laughs> and of course they didn't. Um, so he puts on this show of his stuff in uh, Chicago. And he has uh, his old backstory on the war for Soji Yamaguchi as well. He said that he, and this was a Japanese master who came over to uh, America to work with a black clay of Mississippi, fell in love with this African-American woman, and then one day went back to show her the village in which he was born and brought up, and tragically, but quite usefully for Theaster, died in a car crash. So he has all this story, and he's showing his poles and his plates and the rest of it, and like the whole lot sells out in an hour. Wow. And nobody haggles a cent off anything, and and uh, and uh, he wasn't selling them for four or five dollars. He was selling them for four or five hundred dollars. And so it's like okay. And eventually the art world found out what Theaster had done, and they sort of marched up to him and said, "Theaster Gates, you are amazing." <laughs> and he goes, "Am I?" And he said, "Yeah, you're, you're an artist." And he goes, "Like, am I?" Because I teach town planning. So with that money, this is this is what happened. With that money, he goes to the south side of Chicago. Does anybody know the south side? It's quite a poor area. It's 95% African American, and and he wanted to go there and just be in that community. So he bought this shack, and and this is like the power of stories, really. That's what he teaches us. So he he and he bought the shack, and he starts doing what what he calls a gut rehab, which is basically taking all the rubbish. This, this place has been boarded up like for 20 years. He takes all the stuff out of it, and um, and uh, and uh, this is stuff you and I would probably put in a skip. But he decides that each thing which comes out of this house has a story attached to it, and therefore it's important. Uh, and so he gets a, an old hose, which was in the, on the basement, and, and it's covered in dust and rat's urine and stuff. And he cleans it up, and he, and he recoils the hose, and he gets a, the base of a drawer, and he he's just nails the hose to the base of the drawer to make it like a picture. A picture it's hanging on a picture. And he creates a frame out of old balustrading. Uh, and so he creates this, he formalizes this into an object. So it's basically, a, he's, a, he's framed an old hose and he sells it as a work of art for $120,000. Uh, a genius. He sells it and he does it again and again and again. He, he told me he can't believe how wet rich folks get about this stuff. <laughs> and, and then with each one, he goes and buys another house and he does the same gut rehab. He pulls it all out, he puts it into formal objects, sells it to rich folks, and gives a house over to the local community. So he has a black listening house, which is about audio. 
uh, he has a, 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 a house dedicated to uh, filmmaking and black filmmakers, similarly one for literature. And then he started working with Mayor Rahm Emanuel, who was Obama's running mate back in the day, yeah. in, in transforming buildings on that space so they've become community centers and art centers. And so one guy leveraging, which is his word, not mine, leveraging this idea of art, who isn't even, didn't know he was an artist, is transforming a whole area of a major city in America by using his imagination and his ability to tell stories. He's changing the world. It's inspiring. He's in- so, so, so he's inspiring. Yeah. I think the original question was about your vision. <laughs> so so my character. point is to let that happen. Okay. You know, is, 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 is find those voices yeah. and give them the opportunity. And, and so, because he, was, he wasn't coming out of art school or he hadn't come out of some sort of um, sort of practice. Yeah, or formal training. And, and he's redefining what art can be. So art can be some maybe some pots which aren't brilliantly made, but are made with love. Maybe that's enough. And you've seen that. We've had Boy Blue, the, the hip-hop. So Boy Blue, a hip-hop company which had been in the public in 10 years, and they established themselves down in Stratford East. Um, and uh, they, they, they work with local communities and and have done over 10 years and for the Barbican's 40th birthday they did a show uh, in the main theatre stunning, stunning show it was stunning, a thousand people were whooping and cheering and reacting and responding and completely into it and and this was dance right Mm. except nobody looked like they would ever be on the stage of say the Royal Opera House or the Royal Ballet but if it's the most inclusive dance show I've ever seen. Amazing. But different if, body shapes, different ages, exactly, levels, incredible. Exactly. But if dance, actually, as, as an art form, is about using your body to communicate an emotion to an audience that affects them, these are the best dancers in the world. But they just didn't look like what we think dancers should look like. And so it's like the barber can, can play a role in enabling people to express themselves to an audience who really wants something different and fresh and new and real that um, that isn't sort of some sort of establishment notion mm. of perfection or world class or whatever these things mean and actually is much more honest about this is just and I think everybody's got the power to communicate like that if they're allowed the space to do it and that Barbican should be that space. You've preempted a, a question I want to ask you about uh, the canon. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean by the canon? I know the canon. Right, so um, there's obviously a canon of what's typically considered to be great art, right. high art maybe some would say. Um, typically it's very white, very Eurocentric. Um, firstly, do you think a canon is necessary or helpful? And how can we deliver, um, develop a more inclusive and representative canon if you deem it to be necessary? I, yeah, you can't, history exists. Mm. And, and as a species, we love history, we love stories. Ever since uh, humans have existed, they've always protected their history. Yeah. So whether that history was delivered orally through generations or it's delivered through artworks or buildings so I don't think you can we can escape the fact we love history yeah so sorry is everyone clear on what a canon is when I talk about canon so uh, yeah Yeah. a canon is literally is a a history of art and 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 in this term 
always a history of poetry or it's a history of literature and do you fit in that canon mm. you know Hemingway fits in the canon Shakespeare fits in the canon so yeah. who gets to go in the canon Classical who gets to be music. taught in schools exactly. who gets yeah. to and, it, and it's really important because those ideas go inside our heads and they affect our personalities and how we think about I mean, the world it's the reason Beethoven is taught in music and not Biggie or Tupac right, right? they don't fit into the yeah. traditional canon yeah. well I think you'll find they will well, I hope yeah, so. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But so, so um, because it's the, only my canon. I, went, sure. I actually interviewed a guy called George Martin once, who was the producer for the Beatles. Yes, and he was an amazing, lovely, gentle man who actually came from a different canon. He came from classical music, and he only produced the Beatles because he thought they. When he met them, he thought they were funny. I just liked hanging out with them, and and I asked him, you know, about. I cited the canon question, which was like. Um, how can you, you know, how does how does classical music fit with pop music, and how does he make that work in his own head? And he said, "There's only two sorts of music, which is good and bad." <laughs> uh, and I think he's right, don't you? So it's like, so to get in the canon, you have to be deemed good, right? And and so, and I just think the canon changes, and I think the canon is changing at the moment. So, but that's. Don't you think that's because of huge socioeconomic upheaval? Massive. For example, George Floyd is a huge watershed moment. Yep, watershed moment. Any, any, any doubt? But it doesn't mean the stuff hadn't been going on. So if you look at, say, the Nasuka Group, which came, which, which was based in a university in Nigeria, mm-hmm. uh, had amazing artists. One of whom is El Anasui. He's become very famous. They were, they were working at, at the intersection of um, post-colonial West Africa, and avant-garde Europe, typically around modernism and France. And they were bringing those two things together. So traditional African mark-making, reclaiming that voice, that culture, after the colonial departure, but not denying their connection and their conversation they're having with the rest of the world and bringing that in. And that's that's amazing when you see that work that the Super Group were, were making in the '60s. They are part of the canon, just nobody talks about them. But but people are you know people have been operating with blinkers on, haven't they? And I think so. so I think what we see is the canon being written rewritten in the, by this generation, but it'll be rewritten again in 50 years' time by another generation about like what is art, yeah, ultimately. Look, I've touched upon the socio-economic upheaval, which mm. I believe has led to the reappraisal of this canon. Last summer, of course, the Barbican Centre um, has been through its own upheaval. Uh, it was called Institutionally Racist by current and former staff who published a book containing over 100 accounts of prejudicial behaviour dating back to 2014. This was, of course, before your time. Um, this was a watershed moment for the centre. I was on the board at the time. It was difficult. Uh, what actions have you taken to make the centre more inclusive and diverse? Yeah. So when I was at the BBC, I, I reckon I'd say seventy percent of because I was I was news, not features. So seventy percent of my reports were featuring inequality in the arts, and that be, might have been a lack of representation of women, a lack of representation of people of colour, mm. a lack of, lack of respect for the work of minorities and those with um, protected characteristics. And I did it a lot. And I talked, and, and it, I, it just was like, some, something's got to change here because I keep, I'm having the same conversation with, these, with the same people time and time again. And I, I remember having several conversations with Spike Lee, uh, the film director, 
A legend. Total legend, amazing man. And I think I interviewed him three times, and because of the nature of his films, race always came up. Yeah. Uh, and we discussed it a lot. Uh, and then the third time I talked to him was after George Floyd's murder. And he said, this time is different. This time the protests are different. I said, in what way are they different? And he said, because the white folk are out there with the black folk. It's just different. And he was right, wasn't he? I think, it, I think that is a moment. I think that was a moment which changed, um, changed uh, global culture, mm -hmm. I think, but particularly Europe, European-American culture. Uh, uh, in terms of attitudinal behaviour and what is acceptable and what is unacceptable. And I think out of that, and I wasn't there at the time, Barbican made a statement of solidarity um, for Black Lives Matter. And as I, as I understand it, um, I think some of, the, some of the staff at the time felt that was a, a, a performative gesture. Right. That that was a is a principally white organisation which hadn't really addressed equality, diversity, and inclusivity within its own institution, but was quite happy to perform in public. Um, and I have a lot of sympathy for that position. I think mm. a lot of institutions and companies did that. Um, and so when I I was offered the job, I hadn't really I wasn't really hadn't been really told about because it's an internal thing just how much anger there was. And then, of course, when they employed me, a posh white guy from the BBC, it didn't exactly signal change. <laughs> you know, um, it's true, you know. I, and so I, I came into that environment and without um, any intention, and nobody personally blamed me, um, you know, I, I was I arrived as part of the problem. And, and and an example of exactly what the Balkan shouldn't be doing, uh, and and I think like seven days after the Balkan stories was um, published, and Balkan stories was a collection a collection of about a hundred or so different stories by staff members, past and present, who had experienced racism at the Barbican. and it was a profoundly powerful piece of activism, yeah, you know, and really really well done. Um, and and so it was a quite an awkward position uh, uh, and and the institution was in quite an awkward place and so we just but I had been thinking about this for a while and what would you, what needs to happen and so from like from the next day we changed we wrote I think you remember we just wrote a 10-point plan this is what we're going to do we're not going to talk about this stuff we're going to hire a director of equity diversity and inclusion we're going to uh, change our recruitment practices. We're going to change the management of this business. We're going to change the way the business is structured, uh, and all that's you know. There's now a new CEO. There wasn't even a CEO before. There's like one, an omnipotent MD. I mean, it's not to be critical of of, of him. That's just his job, right? Mm. But now the structure's changed, and you, as part of the board, were part of that change of structure. Where there's a CEO who's in charge, but also working much more closely with me as the artistic director, sharing that responsibility, and then bringing other colleagues up, changing departments, changing the members of staff, changing the programme, giving people opportunities who didn't have opportunities, changing the way we spend money. So this is real, visible. And you were, we were at a show last night at Barbican, which has just opened for the 
American artist Carolee Schneeman, who was a radical feminist in the 60s, 70s and 80s, and indeed until she died in 2019. And I think you and I were discussing it before, the vibe there was different, the crowd there was different. Yeah. It just felt like there was a different sort of energy, didn't there? The place is unrecognisable from when I joined in 2019. Right. But then again, I joined during the pandemic, so even yeah. <laughs> being on Zoom versus being right. uh, there in the galleries is a, is a huge difference. But there's an energy there, I think. Yeah, it's amazing. And, and, and that, that is because colleagues have just engaged mm. and embraced and and so the the, the the Barbican stories gave the Barbican permission to change. Yeah. No, it didn't. The Barbican stories gave made, it the kick it needed. Made the Barbican had to change. Yeah. And lots of other institutions still have not had to change. Mm. And so there's an opportunity here for the Barbican to, to to actually show the way to a certain extent because there is a there is a, a, a mandate, a clear mandate from the staff and for the artists who work with us. Mm. It's like change is going to happen and it's going to happen now. It's not a negotiable. It's not happening, you know, a little bit. It's not happening next week. It's like happening today. It's happening now. That's why I joined. That's why right. I signed up, Will. Yeah. Glad you're, you're on board. Um, this stuff is stressful, right? You were previously an editor, you know, choosing what you reviewed, having a great time, winding and dining with Spike Lee and other greats. Wow. You know, do you prefer that job to this? <laughs> no. No. I, no, I like this job. <laughs> I like this job. I, I t- Glad yeah, to hear that. Yeah, no, I... Th- so there's a thing about news, unless you do it, you don't realise it. It's news is like, it's re- well, you know it's relentless because it just pings up on your phone. But if you're working in news, if you're a reporter, it's just, it, you never know. I'm sitting here talking to you and my phone goes off and somebody's died or a story's broken. Mm. I have to, and I'm just like, so, so, I'm sorry, Zulam, I've got to go. And it happens like, a lot. And you, you just, you, you get dragged off planes, you get dragged off holiday, you get dragged off birthdays. It's fine, it's a job, it's fine, it's a job. But it's, it's uh, you know, you can only do that for so long where you literally don't know what your next minute is going to be. And as soon as you've got to report, you have to report with knowledge and authority and you're really rushing and then you're live on air and you can't make a mistake. You know, because it's just, it's the BBC, right? You can't right. make a mistake. And so it's, it's um, I think you use the word stressful. It's stressful. And that's why when you go to the newsroom at the BBC, everybody's, completely lovely and completely supportive because you couldn't do that job if people were shouting and yelling you can do that job because people are just calm and with you and support you and make it as easy as they can for you to stand in front of a camera or sit in front of a microphone to say what you need to say um but 11 years of that is which is what i did that's plenty Okay, so you had your time as an editor. Happy to transition I, into. I did, and even uh, you know, even though the Barbican has not been straightforward, and um, it ha- you know, it's really been interesting. I and the, the colleagues and the artists with whom I've worked, I've learned so much from, and I've mm. grown in a different way. And I think, I, I think it's, I, I think changing up jobs is good. You don't do the same thing forever, right? So just a different chapter. Excellent. Okay, so. Um, I want to ask you about uh, the state of affairs when it comes to the arts and culture. Most of this country's greatest exports are cultural creations or creators. Talking Shakespeare, James Bond, Idris Elba, Glastonbury, which created the concept of the music festival, Adele, Harry Potter, Harry Styles. uh, You know, I could go on. Um, Yet despite this, you know, and these products going to the ends of the earth, arts funding is dwindling. Revenues have been um, absolutely shattered by the pandemic. And uh, the arts always seems to be actively deprioritized by politicians and funders. So, you know, despite its great exploits, 
it's suffering. What, what's going on here? What do you think needs to be done? That's a big question, isn't it? Um, <laughs> is there something about this funny little island we live on, isn't there? Something in the soil which enables this small country to be amazingly creative. And if you look at the great inventions of the 18th and 19th and 20th century, so many of them had their DNA coming out of the UK, of Britain. And, 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 that, and that continues you know, through, through music, through, through literature, through art, through film. Uh, you know, so the, the film studios in the UK now are packed. You know, you, 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 if you want to make a movie, you, 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 there's a big queue of people who are in Pinewood or in Shepparton making movies. So that, 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 that business is absolutely booming. And, and, and in a way, you could argue that business is booming because one other, one specific creative, which when uh, J.K. Rowling was selling the rights to Harry Potter for, uh, to, to make movies, she, she said to Warners, you can have the rights, but you make them in the UK. And that led to the burgeoning of our special effects. Really? Yeah, and uh, businesses. And the, the, those craftspeople who grew up are, are, are out of that. And so we now have you know, two or three generations of craftspeople, some of whom who had already been in that space, but now who've grown that space, which makes this like the best place in the world to come and make those sort of movies. And if you look at the Oscars, you know, the amount of British companies or British creatives who are involved in winning those Oscars is amazing. And so that's one creative helping a whole bunch of other creatives. The music industry, I mean, obviously it's been completely changed by streaming, mm -hmm. but it's, it's you know, in terms of um, punching above your weight globally, it does that. Similar with theatre, similarly with theatre and with television, obviously the BBC is an amazing thing, very well funded arts institution really so you can t you can paint a rosy story but the tough story is and when you look at things like live performance mm. which has really been walloped by covid and and my heart particularly goes to freelancers who literally suddenly found themselves one day they had work and the next day they didn't have work they, were, they couldn't even be unemployed because they still had these small businesses mm. they couldn't access the government's funding schemes and they were left high and dry, and they went and did other jobs. And they, a lot of them haven't come back. And, and so you have a very vulnerable theatre sector, where, you know, which people obviously didn't go out during COVID. Um, you have a very vulnerable sector around technicians and the freelance community, which is, which is the lifeblood of the British creative industries. Um, and now you've got these sort of rapidly rising costs of running a business. And a lot of these businesses and individuals individuals are running on like really tiny margins so we have created something amazing in this country particularly over the last 30 years when you know a lot of the arts places were made free to visit for people and we have this amazing creative community some of whom are sitting in front of me here in this in this space right now mm -hmm. and and you know covid brexit global crisis planetary crisis it's really hard and we have to find a way of of, of holding that because it's so special and and also it's so democratic and the, one of the reasons that the creative industries are so successful in Britain is you know this country is far from perfect 
but people on the whole can speak, they can make, they can say, they can be um, without fear or favour. As you know, we've just had a new Prime Minister bestowed upon us. We've got a new cabinet, a new yeah. culture secretary. Right. If you had their uh, attention for one moment, what would you ask for in terms of a policy introduction? What do you want to see? Oh, you, they, they absolutely have to support the the sector with the right support in terms of finance, and that does not necessarily mean uh, loans. Mm. That means checks, and those checks will pay back tenfold over time, because tourism is important. Why do be, be, you know? Why do people come to Britain? They come to Britain. To, to see our buildings, to see our plays, to experience our culture. Mm. Um, so, uh, you know, we export, we, we are a mass net exporter from the creative industries. Uh, our our, our, our theatres are the envy of the world. The mu- well, just, the television, music, film, theatre, art, you know, these, the, the, you know, these are, are, are economic and social drivers, which are really important. And so if you see a space like the theatrical space, which is having a very, very tough time at the moment because it's being hit by all, all the different uh, sort of tectonic traumas we're suffering, support them, back them, give them the breaks they need so they, they can succeed. Because producers take massive risks anyway, and that risk needs to be shared. Let's write the letter, let's, let's ask. Never know. I tend to describe Freud as a creative agency when people ask. I think you know, we cover a broad range of creative disciplines, which is always exciting and dynamic and interesting. How do you think we as an agency could better produce creative work? You just have to break the rules. I, I, I remember interviewing J.J. Um, uh, Abrams, the film director. And, and he oh, yeah, director of Star Wars, the right, prequels. Well, exactly. Yeah. I interviewed him just at the time he was doing the first reboot, and this was before it launched. Wow. And, and so I said, said to him, how can you take on a franchise like that and not be nervous? Because it, you know, the, the franchise is, got, is so beloved by so many people, and it's in your hands. And he said, Look, I don't want to seem at all arrogant, but I don't think about those people. I don't really think about the audiences. All I do is uh, I ask myself a series of questions and I find the answers. So how do I get Captain Spock from that part of the Starship Enterprise to that bit? And if he meets Captain Kirk, what do they say? And if they have a fight, what happens next? And he said, by the end of the... wrong franchise, that's Star Trek. Oh, whatever. (laughs) Star Wars. He did Star Trek as well. He did Star Wars. He did, oh, did both? Yeah, he did Star okay. Trek, yeah. You're good, you're good. Thank you, I thought so. Yeah, yeah. I, I think he definitely told me about Captain Kirk. <laughs> uh, anyway, maybe that's the next franchise, just mix the two of them, right? Um, but so, so and he said, and, and what he was describing, so and he said, by the end of time I've asked all those questions and found answers, I've got myself a shooting script. Mm. And then I, if I go and I make it. And what he was describing was the Socratic method of interrogation, of course. Socrates famously interrogated the truth to the point when he could reveal that it wasn't true and he was eventually killed by because he was deemed to be ruining the minds of the young Athenaean uh, population. But it was a Socratic method, so asking questions, a critical discourse is the root of all creativity, in my view. So if you look at something like Marcel Duchamp, who was a, a French artist, mm. who... who um, who uh, came out of Paris um, 
you know, was born late last, uh, late in the nineteenth uh, century, and he was an okay artist, okay painter, but not brilliant. Uh, he had, a, you know, Picasso was better, and he and, and he went to, he went to live in New York for a bit, and and he was, he was, um, part of a group of artists and. Uh, curators who put on an exhibition of contemporary art. It's going to be the largest exhibition, uh, com- largest exhibi- exhibition of contemporary art ever held in America. It's in uh, 1917, so just towards the end of the war. Mm-hmm. And uh, so they had this huge exhibition. Anybody could be show their art in this exhibition. Anybody. All you had to do was pay five dollars to become a member of the society and one dollar to put your artwork into the exhibition. And he decided he wanted to test this notion of no judges, no juries, just uh, just having a completely just let it be. He, so he tested. So he decided to ask four crucial questions, J.J. Abrams style, four crucial questions which had never been asked before. And the first question he asked is, why does art have to be beautiful? Because up until this point, all art had to be beautiful. I mean, we're talking about this is in the you know in coming through. Is this World Abrams War. or Duchamp? This is Duchamp. Okay. So this is coming <laughs> coming through World War One. He's thinking, why? Why does art have to be beautiful? Because okay. the world's not beautiful. So he went. He went, and he, he decided to pick up something, what he described as anti-retinal. He picked a, a urinal. Yes. And then he said, why does art have to be unique? Why can't it just be ready-made? So he went and picked a ready-made urinal. He went down to a plumber's merchant's bought a urinal. Third thing he asked is, why does art have to be made by an artist? Why can't I just choose something and say it's art? And then the fourth thing, the fourth thing which changed everything, changed art forever, it's one thing, is he said, why with art is the medium more important than the idea? Ooh. So until that moment, if you wanted to be considered to be an artist, you had to paint on a canvas or you had to carve wood. And so you choose the medium, then you express yourself. And he said, no, 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 you do it the other way around. The idea comes first, and then you choose the best medium with which to communicate that idea. So he chose a urinal because he wanted to ask all those previous questions I've just, I've just said. So he gets his urinal, he goes, literally goes and buys a urinal, uh, and he writes Armat on it as his signature because he doesn't disclose who he is because he's on the panel. He sends this in into the, uh, he sends this uh, urinal in for the competition, not the competition, into, into the exhibition to be shown. He, sp- he spends his $5 to become a member of society. He gives a $1 for the work, and he stands there when it arrives and he watches all his fellow organizers arguing about this because it's very vulgar to show to show a urinal as a work of art in america in 1970 17 was a deeply vulgar concept and so they argued about it and they just said this this isn't a work of art it's disgraceful and they actually uh, didn't they only they not only didn't show the work they smashed it to smithereens and what was it? and so he didn't mind. He just went and bought another one. <laughs> but but and but there was ever a, resourceful, right? Ever, but the point is, you you can't destroy a great idea. Um, and, and also is like any one of those four questions he asked: Why does it have to be beautiful? Why does it have to be new, unique? Why does it have to be made by an artist? Why doesn't the idea come first? Any of those a primary school child could have asked. And that's where and he changed the world with that. Out of that led to Dada, surrealism, situationism, punk rock alternative comedy you name it out, out of one action which anybody here in this room could have done mm. if you're not asking questions you're not creatively engaged how can we live more creative lives can you give us some simple tips well I think it's everything you do so I, we have the, you know so we all have got this amazing facility right as humans we are, we are the only species that can step out of time and place and have an idea 
and realize it. It's called creativity. It's amazing. So if, if, I, if I'm sitting here in this room, I could also be on, I could send a text to a friend uh, with a little joke in it um, and, and I could be here. And so I'm able to imagine myself being somewhere else. I'm able to imagine myself talking to somebody else. I'm able to put some words together uh, that I think will resonate with that person who I can't see and is in another time and place and make, give them a reaction. So I can have an idea and I can realize it and it can be completely abstract. And that's like the most amazing facility. No, the biggest super, supercomputer in the world will never have that level of abstract thinking, that ability to take uh, a, an idea and make it happen. And so that's what we have and we do it all day, every day. And actually, it's just when we're just rolling and not really using that facility to to um, imagine and do um, that we are in, uh, oh, you know, it's, it'd be that life becomes a bit boring. Mm. But just like writing a sentence takes great imagination because okay. you have to you have, you have to conceive something which doesn't exist and you have to put it down in a form which makes it um, makes it material. That's just like just that. No, no, no other species species could do that. It's an amazing thing, and you can change your words and change your meaning. So use it. Any more practical tips for us? You know, Gen Z millennials here <laughs> in London <laughs> working busy jobs. Break the rules. Ask questions, <laughs> and and don't and you don't you, and the other things you can't fail. There's no such thing as failure. You know, there's a, it's it's a subjective. I think my line manager would disagree, but it's no such. <laughs> it's subjective and it's temporal. So so it's failure doesn't. So you you can't fail. You cannot fail. So just do stuff, and then it will eventually it will all make sense. We're all. I tell you what, we're it's every, a lot of faith that's required. Yeah, but just, everybody's in a rush now. Mm. Everybody wants to get everywhere. So slowing so. down. That's a practical tip. Just 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 yeah. I mean, you know, I think about artists like Pollock, Jackson Pollock. He was in his 40s before he was successful. So Warhol was, was similarly, you know, doing lots of, he was working lots of other jobs before he got successful. Mm. Uh, you know, Mary Wesley didn't write a book until she was 70. There's not a rush. Everybody's in a rush. There's no rush. There's no rush. Life is long. All right, quick fire questions. What's your favorite art center? Barbican. Good job. That was an easy, yeah. easy in. Okay. What's your favorite artistic medium? Art. Art, as in? Uh, yeah, fine art. Yeah. Um, I, I painting, sculpture. I just artists and what they do. What's your favorite film of all time? Alfonso Cuarón's Itu Mama Tambian. Have I said that right? You you have. Well done. When did that? When was that film released? When did you first see it? Ooh, why is it so beautiful? Nineties. Oh, it's okay. just a fantastic road trip. These two boys coming of age. Story, cinematography, sound. Cinematography What's is the... off the scale. Yeah. Um, and I also love cinema parody. So. Okay, my favorite film is Parasite. Just in case you're wondering, it's just oh. the framing. Like every single frame is there so deliberately, and it advances the story, and it just blew my mind. It's a great film. I mean, it's yeah. a great film. It's, it's a, it's a phenomenal film. First film, uh, non-English film to win Best Oscar as well. Yeah, broke down barriers. Yeah, it did, and it was, an, it was an amazing film. And to me, that film is an example as to why artists should always believe in their product, always, because you never know where it could go or where it could end up. Korean films hadn't really been marketed in the West up, up until that point, but because there was a marketing machine behind that, everyone realized how amazing it was. What's the worst film you've re reviewed? Because you used to do that. Oh, yeah. You yeah, sure. gone. Cats. <laughs> <laughs> it was so bad. Yeah? Yeah, I mean, it was properly bad. I mean, yeah. it was like... What went wrong? 
everything. It was just, <laughs> it was just, because it, 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 it's just a series of, you know, it's, it's a series of vignettes, really. It's a series of poems, obviously, okay. as it, from its beginning. And it just doesn't hang together. And it's just, it's just, it's just so shallow <laughs> and, and um, so bad. And, and the animations, you know, honestly, you know, too many cats' anuses. <laughs> <laughs> It wasn't. It. Right. Did anybody see it? Yeah, I did. It so wasn't a good movie, was it? So bad. Yeah. yeah. The less said about that, the better. No, exactly. What did it know? Exactly. It's the same, same story. Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, who's your favourite contemporary artist? I always change my mind. I'm going to go Kerry James Marshall. Great choice. Um, who's your favourite legacy artist? So historic master. I think that's oh, what they're easy. referring to. Suzanne. Suzanne. There we go. And lastly, what's the most genius work you've seen in the last 10 years? I think, and this is, and this is, there is a connection here to the Barbican. Uh, well there, there's uh, an actor, director, writer, performer called Simon McBurney, who, uh, who runs a, uh, a theatrical company called Complicite. And he did this unbelievable show in 20 I think it was 2015 called The Encounter uh, and you're in a, you're in a theatre did anybody see The Encounter so he, you're in a theatre with like full of people normal uh, he's on stage just sitting there on his own I think there's a couple of props around him but not very much normal and then he comes on and he asks everybody to put on headphones which are on your chair and you'll put on headphones so immediately you're kind of on your own, but you are having a shared experience. Mm. And he was using, I think it was Stenheiser's um, particular sound system, which is a sort of a 360 sound system. And then he just starts, he just starts guessing, I remember, I, I, he just starts looking at his phone, and, so he's, and he's, just, he's looking at his photos because kind of a queue is late or something's late. So, so I'm oh, sorry guys, I'm sorry I'm a bit late, but oh, that's my, that's my door. And he drifts into this story uh, and just from that point, so you just think he's just chatting to you because, and he's not, it's, it's all part of the story, and he just draws you in. And the sound effects are, and he takes you into the a story of the Amazon, of this amazing, incredible story about somebody getting lost in the deepest, darkest Amazon, and you hear the planes, and you hear the story, and you hear some, you hear some uh, of some archive tape. And all the time he's on the stage, he's telling you this, he's building up the pressure, he's building up the pressure, and you've got the headphones on, you've got everybody else there. And, he's, and he has this, there's this massive wall at the back, he picks up a bottle, he throws it into the wall, and it, and it embeds in the wall, it doesn't move. It's like, you, it's like being in a movie. Oh. It, it was unbelievable, and it was a work of complete genius. I can't imagine anybody other than he, he could do it. I suppose they could, but it was just, it was just, as a, you know, it was a one-person one show, and, and he could have filled an arena with it. And it was... Absolutely, yeah. Mm. Absolutely extraordinary. Thanks to Will and Zolom and to you for listening. And remember, there are more than 30 other episodes of the Freudcast for you to listen to if you haven't already. I'm Matt Barbet. Bye for now.